This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So we were talking earlier this morning about mental health awareness, and that is a good thing. But as we talk more and more about mental health, people also start tossing around words and phrases like so-called therapy speak. On the one hand, I mean, it is good to talk about these things, right? But on the other, there's some concern that maybe this oversimplifies things. What does that mean exactly? Well, Dr. Valerie Fridland is a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada and author of Like Literally Dude and joins us now to talk about this. First of all, great book title. <laughs> Thank you very much. You kind of have to say it with the with the tude when you say it, right? Yes, uh, I love listening to people say it because sometimes they're they're better at it than others in terms of getting that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay, so what made you talk about what is therapy speak? Well, therapy speak is basically how we use terms from clinical settings, usually in a therapy uh, setting, in our everyday lives in ways that might take some part of the original meaning, but not necessarily misuse it, but extend it in ways that it wasn't originally intended. Okay. Do you have some examples there for us? Yes. Yeah, so for example, we are these days hearing a lot about narcissists. <laughs> so, so everybody true. who shows some sort of inward thinking and sort of uh, interest in their own self above others, we call them narcissists. But, you know, actually clinically, I think only 1% of the population can clinically be described as narcissists. Um, because that, yes, they're very self-focused, but all of us are somewhere on the narcissism scale. And when we talk about true narcissists, it's people that are at the extreme level. And when we use it in everyday talk, we're not talking about that. Or another great example is OCD. OCD, of course, is a, a clinical term used to describe people that have a disorder where they have to repeat certain behaviors over and over again. And often they need things in an exact certain way. But in everyday speak, we often use it just to mean, hey, I, I'm really OCD, meaning I'm organized. Right. Okay. Now, do you feel it's harmful to use the phrases in that way? You know, as a linguist, I think that it's the natural state of language to change and to morph and to become useful in different new ways for its speakers. Uh, I can imagine, though, from a clinician standpoint, that the danger here is that we're simplifying these terms beyond what should happen, and we're using them as ways to describe behaviors inaccurately, and we might label people, and we also might use it as a way to avoid certain people because we label them with sort of clinical disorders that they don't actually have. So I could see some harm in that way. Okay. And what about the word trauma? I feel like this is a word that gets a lot of overuse. Absolutely. And I think when you look at uh, Google Ngram um, findings that trace the last 50 years, the use of the word trauma in text has grown enormously. I think it's part of this whole movement to talk more about our personal experiences. This is really a relatively new thing to always bring our own emotions and feelings into things. I don't think 50 years ago that was really considered appropriate. We certainly are talking about mental health more now and about our own experiences and being vulnerable. And I think trauma has enlarged in the last 20, 30 years to discuss things that wouldn't necessarily be like wartime trauma. I think how it was used previously, it'd be more our own emotional trauma from even small minor things that might have happened to us. 
Right. And like a few years ago, well, not a few years ago, but 10 years ago, I certainly didn't know as much about the term gaslighting as I do now. <laughs> yes, gaslighting has really taken off. In fact, last year, uh, Miriam Webster picked it as their word of the year. And that was based on this massive, I think it was almost 2000% increase in lookups. Uh, or searches for that term on their website, which means people, you know, had really started to embrace it and want to know what it meant. I think the appeal of gaslighting is we've all been in those situations where someone's made us believe that we did something wrong when really they were covering their own tracks or intentionally misleading us. And so it really encapsulates that emotion, that feeling that people can recognize then if we say, oh, I was gaslighted. In one quick word, we can describe something that is a communal experience and other people recognize it and have experienced it, which is why that has become so popular. So this idea, though, of therapy speak becoming more common, it must be fascinating for you to see that in terms of studying linguistics, that all these new terms with more community oriented meanings are coming into fashion. Absolutely. As a linguist, one of our big interests is watching how language changes over time. But not just because that's an interesting thing to do, and we all have fun watching new words, but because of what it says about the culture from which they emerge. Usually, when we see an influx of terms of a certain type, um, like therapy speak at a certain period, it really is capturing some sort of cultural zeitgeist that we have at that moment or in that decade. Um, I think another good example of that is pronouns. Pronouns have really been rapidly changing in the last 10 years. And when we look at um, words of the years from year 2000 and years 2010 and 2020, they almost all point to pronouns. So in 2020, it was they, singular they. In 2000, it was she. And this encapsulated this change in our gender identities and gender roles. So we were using words in different new ways to represent that. Now, over the last decade, we've really started to see a huge rise in using terms like boundaries and self-care and trigger, all because we're really paying much more attention to mental health and our own experiences. Do you think, though, the concern is that sometimes those words are going to get overused, therefore they lose that important meaning that you're talking about? Well, I think it can definitely dilute that meaning. I think the bigger issue is that with social media, these words are often used sort of for just, um, you know, a quick little zinger or something that, you know, can make it instantly relatable without true meaning behind it. And so I think the bigger concern is that people are using it just for attention or just to make a pop or a splash on social media, rather than really to discuss mental health in ways that I, I think would be more important and deeper. Right. Like I had not really heard the term Delulu. What is that? Oh, yeah. Delulu is a great one. So I was just at the American Dialect Society Word of the Year vote, which we have every year. This time it was in New York City, and that was about a week ago, where we talk about some new terms that have come up. And it's not always mental health terms. And typically, it's actually a lot with AI lately. So hallucinate is another mental health term that has come into the forefront because of of new usage. But Delulu came up because it's become very popular. And it stands for delusional. It's sort of a cutesy term. So you'd say something like Delulu is the Salulu, meaning delusional is the solution. And it really came from uh, K-pop fans that would be fantasizing about their relationships with these K-pop stars, and they were called Delulu. And now it's entered the mainstream to describe any behavior that's a little bit crazy. Oh, that's a new one to me. But also, Dr. Fredlin, I want to go back to something you just said there. You get together with others and vote on a word of the year. This sounds like an amazing conference. It's a lot of fun. We do it every January. It's the one vote that all the other ones from the dictionaries lead up to. 
Um, we've It's the longest running vote. It's been happening since, I think, 1989. And yes, we have about 200, 300 linguists and lexicographers that all get into a room, usually after a cocktail or two, I'll, I'll tell the truth. <laughs> and uh, we discuss words and we have really fun discussions of arguing uh, for, for and against certain words to make them the word of the year. And then we pick one and everybody votes on it. And um, then it goes out in all the papers the next day. And it's, it's really in fun, but it also points to what's been our captivation that year in terms of words and um, social anxieties, typically. So much fun. That sounds amazing. Uh, so in your line of work, then where do you go? Wh- what do you read? What do you look at to see new words or what's what people are saying? Well, certainly a lot comes from social media. I would say at least half of what we talked about were social media driven, typically off Instagram or TikTok. TikTok's a huge one for young influencers who introduce new words in new ways. But of course, I teach young people. And so I actually do a word of the year vote every year in the fall with my students where they bring their nominations and argue for and against them. And we do a little class project and it's always a lot of fun. And they teach me pretty much 99% of the words that are new that year, because of course, they're not in my generation. So I learn a lot from them. Um, And then, you know, we just sort of also get things from uh, a lot of times internet usage or what's happening in the world. So generative AI, of course, has spawned a huge amount of new words, chat GPT, for example. So now my students don't even say I'm going to put that into chat GPT. They say, I'm going to GPT that. So that's not a new word necessarily. It's been around for a couple of years, but they're using it in a new way. And that's really what we try to capture, how things morph over time. So you're you're in the front lines of that. You're kind of seeing that language morph right in front of you. Absolutely. And that's why I love being a professor because I get old, but the students that I teach are always the same age. <laughs> and But you're seeing that change too, which is so fascinating. Do you ever come across one where you go, oh, I did not see that one coming. That's a weird one. Uh, you know, I think every every year there are some like that. The ones I didn't see coming this year is how much the Barbie movie has really impacted our language. A lot of the words we discussed both in my class and at the Word of the Year vote were ones related to Barbie. So uh, Kenergy, when you have a lot of Ken, yes. Ken-frantic energy. <laughs> yes, that is and so Kenaissance. funny. Kenesans. And there was also the, having a kendersance. Um, so there were a lot of words related to uh, Ken, interestingly enough, but the Barbie movie. And it's not that typical that one movie really enters the lexicon to the degree that Barbie has. And I didn't see that one coming, I have to admit. Honestly, I love it. Kenesance, I think I'm going to have to use that. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been great fun. Thanks have for having me. Have a great day. That's Dr. Valerie Fridlin, professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada and author of Like Literally Dude, which again, amazing title for a book.